Welcome, 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 Cryptique fans, to the show where we search for answers to some of the most incredible stories out there. We bring you tales of the paranormal, hidden history, forbidden knowledge, conspiracy theories, and even fringe science. If you enjoy the show, hit us up with a five-star rating and write a review. Email case suggestions to crypticpodcast at gmail.com. If you have an interesting true paranormal story and would like to appear on the show, shoot us an email. Tell all your friends about us as word of mouth is the best advertisement you can get and turn someone on to your favorite podcast. Tonight, have you ever wished you could master a musical instrument? Piano, cello, or maybe the guitar? How long would it take? 10 years? 20 years? Less than two years? What would you give up to go from really bad to one of the greatest ever in less than two years? That's what we're talking about tonight. Did one of history's greatest musicians sell his soul to do just that? Robert Leroy Johnson was born on May 8, 1911 and died August 16, 1938. He was an American blues guitarist, singer, and songwriter. His landmark recordings in 1936 and 1937 display a combination of singing, guitar skills, and songwriting talent that has influenced later generations of some of your favorite musicians. He is now recognized as a master of the blues, particularly the Delta blues style. But what was Robert Johnson's early life like? When Robert Leroy Johnson was born in Hazelhurst, Mississippi, on or around May 8, 1911, his life was already atypical. His mother, Julia Dodds, had birthed ten children ahead of him, all with her sharecropper husband, Charles. But Robert was born out of wedlock, fathered by a plantation worker named Noah Johnson. Ahead of Johnson's birth, Charles Dodds was forced to relocate to Memphis and change his name after being chased out of town by prominent white landowners. When Johnson was just three or four, he joined Dodds, now named Spencer, in Tennessee. In the city, the young boy's world opened up. He attended school and discovered popular music, while his older brother taught him how to play the guitar. After several years, he returned to the Mississippi Delta, where he joined his mother and her new husband, Dusty Willis. But Johnson had already been bitten by the music bug, and was much more interested in his craft than working in fields. At 19, Johnson married Virginia Travis. Sadly, just one year later, Travis died during childbirth. Not long after, in 1931, Robert married his second wife, Coletta Kraft. Sadly, she too would pass away within just a few years. One of the earliest accounts of Johnson as a musician comes from Delta Blues pioneer Sun House, who first encountered the young artist around 1930 in Robinsonville, Mississippi. House recalled that Johnson, quote, blew a harmonica and he was pretty good with that, but he wanted to play guitar, end quote. Johnson's guitar skills, according to House, were less than stellar. In fact, the elder musician referred to his attempts as, quote, such a racket you'd never heard. Get that guitar away from that boy, people would say. He's running people crazy with it, end quote. Just two years later, when Johnson returned from his travels across the Delta, he played once again for son and fellow musician Willie Brown. This time, however, they were staggered by his improvement. He was so good. When he finished, all our mouths were standing open. As a traveling performer who played mostly on street corners, in juke joints, and at Saturday night dances, Johnson had little commercial success or public recognition in his lifetime. 
He participated in only two recording sessions, one in San Antonio in 1936 and one in Dallas in 1937, that produced 29 distinct songs with 13 surviving alternate takes, recorded by famed Country Music Hall of Fame producer Don Law. These songs recorded at low fidelity in improvised studios with a totality of his recorded output. Most were released as 10-inch 78 RPM singles from 1937 to 1938 with a few released after his death. Other than these recordings, very little was known of him during his life outside of the small musical circuit in the Mississippi Delta where he spent most of his life. His music had a small but influential following during his life and in the two decades after his death. In late 1938, John Hammond sought him out for a concert only to discover that Johnson had died. Musicologist Alan Lomax went to Mississippi in 1941 to record Johnson, also not knowing of his death. Columbia Records assembled a collection of Johnson's recordings titled King of the Delta Blues Singers that was released in 1961. It is widely credited with finally bringing Johnson's work to a wider audience. The album would become influential, especially on the British blues movement. Eric Clapton has also called Johnson the most important blues singer that ever lived. Musicians such as Bob Dylan, Keith Richards, and Robert Plant have cited both Johnson's lyrics and musicianship as key influences on their own work. According to AmericanBluesScene.com, during Johnson's lifetime, his only hit record was Terraplane Blues, which sold only 5,000 copies. Since 1938, Johnson's King of the Delta Blues Singers LP, containing 16 of his songs, has sold around 20,000 copies, but the re-release in 1990, titled The Complete Recordings, has sold 1.5 million copies as of August 2021. Right. And 1.5 million copies isn't very many either. Yeah. That's interesting to me, too, that, uh, you know, it was such an influence on these people. But the original record, you know, the one that we're mainly talking about, uh, only sold 20,000 copies. And the statistical chances of it ending up with these influential people isn't very high. Or maybe it's that the people who wound up with it became musicians. Who knows? Many of Johnson's songs have been covered over the years, becoming hits for other artists, and his guitar licks and lyrics have been borrowed by many musicians. Much of what is known about him was reconstructed by researchers such as Gail Dean Wardlow and Bruce Conforth in their 2019 award-winning biography of Johnson, Up Jumped the Devil, The Real Life of Robert Johnson. Two films, the 1991 documentary The Search for Robert Johnson by John Hammond Jr., In a 1997 documentary, Can't You Hear the Wind Howl, The Life and Music of Robert Johnson, which included reconstructed scenes. Both were attempts to document his life and demonstrated the difficulties arising from the scant historical record and conflicting oral accounts. Over the years, the significance of Johnson and his music has been recognized by the Rock and Roll, Grammy, and Blues Halls of Fame and the National Recording Preservation Board. So what is the mystery surrounding Robert Johnson's death? After his final recording session in 1937, Johnson performed around Texas accompanied by Johnny Shines. They played informal juke joints, parties, and dances, just as they had always done before heading back to Mississippi. Details of the rest of this year are slim, although it is known that Robert spent some time in Memphis and Helena, Arkansas. What is known is that Robert died near Greenwood, Mississippi on August 16, 1938. He was 27 years old. 
His death remained unreported for 30 years, and without a formal autopsy, the public has been left to speculate on the cause of death, adding to the lore that surrounds Johnson. Through a variety of accounts, including those by fellow blues artists David Honeyboy Edwards and Sonnyboy Williamson, we know that Johnson spent the last weeks of his life playing regularly at a juke joint attached to the Three Forks store just outside of Greenwood. In one version of the story, Johnson flirted with a woman at the party, possibly the wife of the store owner, and was poisoned by her jealous husband. He became so sick that he had to be taken into Greenwood, where he died. In 1968, Mississippi journalist Gail Dean Wardlow sought to find out the truth about Johnson's final days. In addition to unearthing his death certificate, Wardlow discovered that the artist may have been born with congenital syphilis which is transmitted to the fetus by the infected mother. According to a doctor, it is possible that he had an aneurysm caused by syphilis and his love of drinking moonshine. In a more recent account, published in 2006 in the British Medical Journal, Dr. David Connell argues that, based on Johnson's appearance in photos, the artist may have suffered from Marfan syndrome. Marfan syndrome is an inherited disorder that affects connective tissue. The fibers that support and anchor your organs and other structures in your body. Marfan syndrome most commonly affects the heart, eyes, blood vessels, and skeleton. People with Marfan syndrome are usually tall and thin with unusually long arms, legs, fingers, and toes. The genetic disorder could have contributed to Johnson's early death. Johnson's final resting spot is also just as confusing as his death. Today, three headstones around Greenwood pay tribute to the bluesman. In 1990, Columbia Records erected a monument at the Mount Zion Missionary Baptist Church where the artist was long believed to be buried in an unmarked grave. That same year, an Atlanta band aptly named the Tombstones, had a smaller marker placed at the Payne Chapel in Quito, Mississippi, where it was also alleged that Johnson was laid to rest. In 2000, an 85-year-old woman named Rosie Exridge claimed that her husband had helped bury Johnson under a pecan tree at a church north of Greenwood, where a third headstone now sits. What's the deal with Robert Johnson and the devil? Johnson's poorly documented life and death have given rise to much legend. The one most closely associated with his life is that he sold his soul to the devil at a local crossroads to achieve musical success. So that's where we come in. Hey, Cryptique fans, we hope you're enjoying the show. Let me make a suggestion for a little change of pace. If you like true crime, you should check out Exploring Evil. I've got stories out right now about a killer shaman, a blood farm, and a cannibal rapper. Exploring Evil is the black sheep of our podcast family, and a lot of the stories have a paranormal twist. So if you've got a true crime itch to scratch, you can find Exploring Evil on Apple, Spotify, Google, and everywhere you listen to Cryptique. If you want something a little lighter, give Movie Howl a try. My co-host Joe and I talk about our favorites as well as new, old, and unknown movies. 
So join in if you want ideas for something fun to watch or to see if you're the only one that noticed that Eva Green's eyebrows literally never move in Casino Royale. Movie How can be found anywhere fine podcasts are curated. We got this story from ralphpotts.com, R-O-L-F pots.com. And he has a treasure trove of stories on his website on all sorts of topics, and I highly recommend checking it out. Robert Johnson sold his soul to the devil in Rosedale, Mississippi. He was born in Hazelhurst, and his supposed grave is in Quito. But Rosedale did figure in the lyrics for one of Johnson's most famous songs, Traveling Riverside Blues. Riverside Blues had a huge influence on rock and roll and was remade as Crossroads by Eric Clapton, which mentions Rosedale with the same phrase Johnson uses. It was also covered by Led Zeppelin, whose more well-known Lemon song famously steals a lyric from that same Johnson tune. You can squeeze my lemon till the juice runs down my leg. Now you can squeeze my lemon till the juice runs down my Till the juice run down my leg, baby. You know what I'm talking about. You can squeeze my lemon till the juice run down my leg. That's what I'm talking about now. But I'm going back to Brad Bunny if I be rocking to my head. All right. Meeting with the Devil at the Crossroads. A Vision with a capital V is told by legendary bluesman. Henry Goodman. Robert Johnson been playing down in Yazoo City and over at Beulah trying to get back up to Helena. Ride left him out on a road next to the levee. Walking up the highway, guitar in his hand propped up on his shoulder. October, cool night, full moon filling up the dark sky. Robert Johnson thinking about Sun House preaching to him. Put that guitar down, boy. You're driving people nuts. Robert Johnson needing as always a woman and some whiskey. Big trees all around, dark and lonesome road. A crazed, poisoned dog howling and moaning in a ditch alongside the road. Sending electrified chills up and down Robert Johnson's spine, coming up on a crossroads just south of Rosedale. Robert Johnson feeling bad and lonesome. Knows people up the highway in Gunnison can get a drink of whiskey and more up there. Man sitting off to the side of the road on a log at the crossroads says, You're late, Robert Johnson. Robert Johnson drops to his knees and says, Maybe not. The man stands up, tall, barrel-chested, and black as the forever-closed eyes of Robert Johnson's stillborn baby, and walks out to the middle of the crossroads where Robert Johnson kneels. Stand up, Robert Johnson. 
Do you want to throw that guitar over there in the ditch with that headless dog and go back up to Robinsonville and play harp with Louie Brown and son? Because you're just another guitar player like all the rest. Or you want to play guitar like nobody ever heard it before. You want to be the king of the Delta Blues and have all the whiskey and women you want? That's a lot of whiskey and women, devil man. I know you, Robert Johnson. Robert Johnson feels the moonlight bearing down on his head and the back of his neck as the moon seems to be growing bigger and bigger and brighter and brighter. He feels it like the heat of the noonday sun bearing down and the howling and moaning of the dog in the ditch penetrates his soul. Coming up through his feet and the tips of his fingers through his legs and arms, settling in that big empty place beneath his breastbone, causing him to shake and shudder like a man with the palsy. Robert Johnson says, that dog gone mad. <laughs> that hound belonged to me. He ain't mad. He's got the blues. I got his soul in my hand. The dog lets out a low, long, soulful moan. A howling like never heard before. Rhythmic, syncopated grunts, yelps and barks seizing Robert Johnson like a grandma, causing the strings on his guitar to vibrate and hum and sing with a sound dark and blue. Beautiful, soulful chords and notes possessing Robert Johnson, taking him over, spinning him around, losing him inside of his own self, wasting him, lifting him up to the sky. Robert Johnson looks over in the ditch and sees the eyes of the dog reflecting the bright moonlight or more likely it seems to Robert Johnson, glowing on their own. A deep, violet, penetrating glow, and Robert Johnson knows and feels that he is staring into the eyes of a hellhound as his body shudders from head to toe. The dog ain't for sale, Robert Johnson, but the sound can be yours. That's the sound of the Delta Blues. I gotta have that sound, devil man. That sound is mine. Where do I sign? You ain't got a pencil, Robert Johnson. Your word is good enough. All you gotta do is keep walking north. But you better be prepared. There are consequences. Prepared for what, devil man? You know where you are, Robert Johnson? You're standing in the middle of the crossroads. At midnight, that full moon is right over your head. You take one more step, you'll be in Rosedale. You take this road to the east, you'll get back over to Highway 61 in Cleveland, or you can turn around and go back to Beulah. Or just go to the west and sit on that levee and look at the river. But if you take one more step in the direction you're headed, you're going to be in Rosedale at midnight under this full October moon. You're going to have the blues like never known to this world. My left hand will forever be wrapped around your soul, and your music will possess all who hear it. That's what's going to happen. That's what you better be prepared for. Your soul will belong to me. This is not just any crossroads. I put this X here for a reason, and I've been waiting on you. Robert Johnson rolls his head around, his eyes upward in their sockets to stare at the blinding light of the moon, which is now completely filled, tie pitch black, delta night. Piercing his right eye like a bolt of lightning as the midnight hour hits. He looks the big man squarely in his eyes and says, Step back, devil man. I'm going to Rosedale. I am the blues. The man moves to one side and says, Go on, Robert Johnson. You're the king of the Delta Blues. 
go on home to Rosedale. And when you get up in town, either you a plate of hot tamales because you're going to need something in your stomach where you're heavy. Although he recorded just 29 songs, the bluesman had a huge influence on guitarists such as Eric Clapton and Keith Richards. Johnson is one of the most studied of all country blues musicians, and he's been the subject of many books, films, and essays. But the mythology surrounding his life just won't go away. But according to folklorist Barry Lee Pearson, it didn't happen. He told NPR, The popular mythology has him as a total loner, Pearson says and kind of lived this life in regret as a repayment for his alleged sin of making contract with Old Scratch. Pearson, a professor at the University of Maryland and the co-author of the book Robert Johnson, Lost and Found, says none of it is true. In the absence of any real biographical information, Pearson says early blues writers got a little carried away. Everybody was so anxious to make this devil story true that they've been working on finding little details that can corroborate it, he says. Here's what we do know about Robert Johnson. He said he was born in Mississippi on May 8, 1911, and grew up on a plantation in the Delta. As a young man, he was more interested in music than farming. He'd hound the older blues musicians for a chance to play. In an interview included in the 1997 documentary, Can't You Hear the Wind Howl, Sunhouse recalls that the young Johnson would annoy audiences with his lousy guitar playing. When Johnson came back from Arkansas six months later, he'd mastered the guitar. That's where the rumors about his deal with the devil came from. But Johnson acknowledged studying with a human teacher while he was gone. After that, Johnson worked as a traveling musician, playing on street corners and in juke joints, mostly in Mississippi. And in 1936, he got a chance to record in Texas. Terraplane Blues was a minor hit, and he was invited back for a second recording session. Johnson died a year later at age 27 under mysterious circumstances. Something he was poisoned although a note on the back of his death certificate says the cause was syphilis, but again, there was no autopsy. In any case, the timing was tragic. Legendary Columbia Records talent scout John Hammond wanted to book Johnson at Carnegie Hall for the landmark Spirituals to Swing concert in 1938. Hammond was also the driving force behind the first LP reissue of Johnson's music in 1961. At the time, Johnson was so obscure that Columbia didn't even have a picture of him to put on the cover. The LP was produced by Frank Driggs, who also wrote the liner notes. If you read the liner notes, Driggs says, you see next to nothing, because I just created a thing out of whole cloth when I wrote the notes, because there really was very little known about the guy. Up Against the Wall That LP, King of the Delta Blues Singers, introduced Johnson's music to a new generation of young, mainly white blues fans, including Eric Clapton, as the rock legend told NPR in 2004. Uh, this is a quote from Eric Clapton. It was on Columbia, and it had, like, some pretty interesting sleeve notes on it about the fact that these were the only sides he had cut, and that they'd done it in a hotel room. And when he was auditioning for the sessions, that he was so shy he had to play facing the corner of the room, Clapton says. I mean, I immediately identified with that because I was paralyzed with shyness as a kid. End quote. But there may be another reason why Johnson recorded Facing the Wall, 
Elijah Wald is a musician and the author of the book Escaping the Delta, Robert Johnson, and the Invention of the Blues. He says there were pre-war blues musicians who had played guitar better than Johnson, as well as musicians who sang better. But Wald says that, unlike most of them, Johnson learned to play from listening to radio and records. Robert Johnson certainly was very conscious of what a hit record sounded like. If you listen to something like Come On In My Kitchen, he's singing very quietly, and he actually has a moment when he says, Can't you hear the wind blowing? He whispers it and then plays this very quiet riff. That never would have worked on a street corner or a Mississippi juke joint, but it sounds great on records. Sound is one of the main things that distinguishes Johnson's sides from other records of the time. I was reading about the way his stuff was recorded, um, but they were saying that it was recorded in a hotel room. A lot of his stuff was recorded in hotel rooms, and some of them were saying that they thought he was really shy because he faced the wall, but they had like an interview with some sort of audio technician who said that playing facing a wall was kind of brilliant for the style that he was doing because he had not just the range of tones that he hit, but a range of volumes he was using. And bouncing the sound off the wall made it actually record better than it would have otherwise. So that might be it. Because I was listening to some of it, and you can tell that it's reverberating off of something. And I know those old, like, those old type of mics had their own sort of unique sound, but that that's what I was thinking of after I started listening to it. I was like, oh, maybe that's what it is. Like, it's he's literally singing into a corner to kind of even out the peaks of the song. It doesn't hurt that the original masters of his recording survived, too. But what really set Johnson apart from his peers was all of the mythology that grew up around him, especially the part about the devil. Many of Johnson's friends, including Johnny Shines in Can't You Hear the Wind Howl, dismissed it as false. No, Shines says. He never told me that lie. If he would have, I would have called him a liar right to his face. You have no control over your soul. How are you going to do anything with your soul? But the myth about Johnson persists in part because it helps sell records. Steve Berkowitz is a producer at Sony Legacy, which is reissuing Johnson's music again, this time in a new Centennial edition. That was always the heart and soul of the marketing plan, Berkowitz says. We always knew the music was great, but a guy sells his soul to the devil at midnight down at the crossroads, comes back and plays the hell out of the guitar, and then he dies. I mean, it's a spectacular story. And there wouldn't be any harm in that, Wald says, except the legend tends to overshadow the real Robert Johnson. To say that he went to the crossroads in the dead of night, first of all, means we're not getting what happened. And second of all, it's kind of insulting, Wald says. It's kind of implying that, unlike us who do this serious work to understand music, these old black blues guys just went and sold their soul to the devil. If it were really that easy, Wald says, the devil would own the souls of every teenage boy and girl in America. A lot of that's true. I, I don't think that it implies that old black blues guys just sold their soul to the devil. I think it's a very unique story and that's one of the reasons that it stands out because it is a unique story. If all these guys said they sold their soul to the devil, then it wouldn't be a unique story and it wouldn't stand out and it would be more easily dismissed. I think if you look at the history of what he calls these old black blues guys, these are guys that put time into learning and mastering their craft 
these aren't guys that just picked up a guitar and in six months started playing better than anybody in the world. These are guys that were fantastically talented, gifted, and put in tons of work to become as great as they were. Yeah. Yeah. I think the problem with the the story, it's it's an interesting idea. You know, it's something we've all heard about. I think there have been a lot of stories written about this type of exchange. You know, it even happens in um, The Witcher 3 video game. There's a character you run into who essentially turns out to be a devil type person. And you're trying to help somebody who's made a deal with him. Um, so it's kind of universal. And to think that it might have actually happened to somebody who was so obscure, then so talented, and then dead in such quick order, you know, it's compelling. I see why the story is attractive, but it does, you know, downplay his personal skill and the struggle he went through to to learn his craft. You know, like you were saying, there's a lot of work that goes into it. Unless it's true, unless he really did it, in which case he didn't put a lot of work into it, but I don't think that's very likely. <laughs> well, I'm going to play the devil's advocate. I think that if you are not great at something, and I tried to pick up a guitar a few times, and I can tell by the few times that I picked up a guitar that it was not meant for me. And he, he had to be able to play guitar a little bit to have these people tell him that he sucked and he needed to go away because he was driving them crazy. But in one part of the story, we hear two years, but then in another part of the story, we hear about six months. And to go from annoying people to be being one of the best ever is amazing. And I suggest if you haven't seen pictures of Robert Johnson, there's not a whole lot. He did have very long fingers, which certainly helps in playing the guitar, but still to go from not just, you know, from being a reject to a prodigy with your own style, a haunting style with a haunting voice and putting it all together is incredible. Uh, I couldn't find any stories of anybody that he'd studied with either. And uh, you would think that when he came back playing the guitar like that, they would say, this person or these people that he worked with would have people beating down the door to study with them. If you look at sports, we'll say baseball, you know, as an example, like Dave Duncan here in St. Louis was the pitching coach for the Cardinals for a number of years, and he always had great pitching staffs, and he would always have people that were what were described as retreads, where they had some success, but then when they came and studied with Dave Duncan, they got really good again, and guess what? Everybody wanted to study with Dave Duncan. Everybody wanted to learn his tricks of the trade because he turned people that were okay into really good. And I think if someone could take somebody from annoying people to being one of the best ever, everybody would want to study with them. Now, it could also be that maybe Robert Johnson didn't want to share who he had studied with, so he fudged a little bit and said, oh, it was the devil. I mean, even playing all the time for two years, every night, it would take longer than that to master an instrument the way he did, in my opinion. 
to get to the point where you would impress people who had been doing it for a long time, like Sunhouse. Yeah, because his Sunhouse was, at least according to that American Blue scene article I referenced from August 16th of 2021, they have some interviews and commentary with uh, a guy who's supposed to be his grandson, Stephen Johnson, along with a few other people. But they, they mention that Sunhouse was one of the first people who made the devil comment as kind of a an offhand remark, saying he must have sold his soul to the devil to be able to do that. Basically talking about the fact that he showed up, wanted to play, wasn't very good, so they kind of you know told him to go away, and he disappeared for a little while and came back better than anybody. And he certainly had his demons. You know, drinking was a problem, obviously, and womanizing was a problem, obviously. But if you look at some of the greats of all time, and there's, you know, a hundred people on this list, but some people that are intriguing to me, uh, Eric Clapton, Lou Reed, Eddie Van Halen, Jack White, Carlos Santana. I wonder how long it took them to perfect their skills. I think these are guys that were born obviously to play the guitar musical geniuses but it still took them a really long time to get to the point where they were playing music that made people it took them a long time before they were playing in front of people and they were just left in total astonishment yeah and i i do think there are that that's something i was thinking about during this whole story was there are certain people who have a built-in talent for it, who have the ability to, I don't know if it's a natural ability to just do it or uh, something that allows them to pick it up really quickly to just kind of mess with it for a little bit and figure out how it works. My brother's kind of one of those. He, he doesn't do anything musically, you know, professionally, but I know that, you know, as a kid, he took piano lessons and he was really good and he could learn anything really quickly, but it wasn't until a little, you know, while into it that everybody started to realize he wasn't learning to read sheet music. He just figured out how the piano worked and he just mimicked what everybody else was doing. You know, and there there are famous musicians who are like that who will just pick up pick up an instrument kind of, you know, plunk and wail on it for a little while until they figure it out and then they can just play. And it, it it doesn't seem like that's the case here. It seems like he actually had a passion for it, but struggled with it. I mean, lots of people want to do something and have trouble with it. You know, I, I have a buddy who would have loved to be a football player, but he's real skinny. He's like five foot seven. It's just not going to happen. <laughs> you know, some people it's not made for them. Some people are made for it and, yeah, I don't know what happened to him in the in that intervening time when he was away. Because some of the articles that I found in, in our research on this said that they thought maybe Sun House was the one who was teaching him this whole time. But other sources say that Sun House was one of the people who, as you were saying earlier, was left in astonishment after he returned from wherever he went and played so well. And certainly there's child prodigies, but that's not what we're talking about. I mean, you can go on YouTube and you can kind of like what you were alluding to. You can see child prodigies that are, you know, a four-year-old that just gets loose on the piano and that they can, they can play great works of music 
uh, just by hearing it. But that's not all that we're talking about. We're talking about someone who created their own music, created their own style, created their own lyrics. And certainly Robert Johnson was influenced. But if you haven't heard him play, and I strongly suggest that you listen to some of his music because he sounds different. He just sounds different. Uh, We talked earlier, by no means are Ryan and I blues aficionados, but it sounds like he's playing lead and rhythm guitar at the exact same time and singing while he's doing it. And I just, I haven't heard that with other people where he is, is strumming a melody and playing a lead guitar all at the same time. And he's playing notes and chords at the same time at like at the exact same time not like a strum and then a pick and a strum and a pick but strumming and picking at the exact same time yeah that is what it sounds like i i have some experience with a guitar i took lessons when i was younger i still have a guitar or two hanging around here somewhere but yeah it that is 100% what it sounds like. And a lot of songs do use, you know, you put your, you make a chord and then you pick, but it's usually a lot more distinct when you move from one to the other. But yeah, there are things that I heard while listening to some of his music where it sounded like more than one guitar or at a minimum, more than one set of hands on a guitar. Kind of strange. I mean, it's just some people are real, real fast, but. Yeah, it did sound odd because it, it also sounded very relaxed, too, because there are people who can play really, really quickly. And you can say, like, that sounds like two people. But this sounded like two different types of rhythms, you know. It sounded like one person playing lead and one person playing rhythm. It's amazing. And to sing at this and to sing at the same time, the kind of multitasking ability you'd have to have. And we were talking earlier about his vocal range is amazing too. And obviously Ryan and I listened to a lot, if not all of his cuts before we decided to make this podcast, but I hadn't realized just how talented he was vocally going from kind of a low pitch to a, almost like a whale. And I don't mean like a dolphin and a whale i mean like a whale like a ghostly high-pitched sound just seamlessly almost freddie mercury like in terms of being able to go from these lows to this high because yeah i i don't know i i what i know about singing a lot of people they have trouble switching from one to another you kind of have to like regroup (laughs) to be able to like okay now i need to be up here And there are very few people who seem to be able to just go from one to the other, like you said, so seamlessly. So if you take one thing away from this show, go listen to some Robert Johnson cuts and let us know what you think. Do they sound like a man possessed? Hit us up at crypticpodcast at gmail.com. But that's it. That's the story, or rather stories, of how Robert Johnson became one of the greatest guitar players or musicians in general of all time. Did he sell his soul at the crossroads? I want to thank Smitty in Minnesota for the email saying that he loves the show 
and suggesting a show on lucid dreams. That's on our list, Smitty. And Tabitha sent us an email from New Mexico, and she suggested a show on El Cucuy, which is apparently a Mexican urban legend similar to the Boogeyman. Have you ever heard of El Cucuy? I haven't, no. It's a pretty interesting story. I just looked up a, a little bit on Wikipedia, but that's something we'd probably like to get to at some point, too. Yeah, I look forward to it. I like learning about these creatures from either other cultures, other places that we haven't heard of. A lot of them are pretty horrifying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot worse than the stuff that I grew up hearing about. <laughs> All right. As always, we appreciate five-star ratings and good reviews. Get a shout-out and be a part of the show by emailing us at C-R-Y-P-T-I-Q-U-E podcast at gmail.com go listen to exploring evil true crime and movie howl movie review podcasts and never ever sell your soul good night cryptique fans